Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, the people side of intelligence with Daryl Blocker. I'm a second generation intelligence officer. Between my father, my brother, and myself, between the three of us, I think we have more than 60 years of service to the intelligence community. If you go on LinkedIn now, there are people deputy director level who are on there all the time selling and touting who we are. Such a difference from a couple of decades ago. It is such a difference. When I walked in the door um, in 1990, the only words that came out of our Office of Public Affairs was, we can neither confirm nor deny. Seven words, that's it. Today's world is not gonna put up with that. Daryl Blocker, welcome to Chatter. Well, I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you. Oh, you, I appreciate you, Daryl. And the last time we spoke, I won't say the venue because uh, that is uh, something that is discreet. But last time we spoke, we were chatting about how long it takes for a book to be made into a movie because we were talking to some prospective authors from our old business. And I think some people were surprised when you kind of rolled your eyes and said, oh, don't expect anything to get done quickly in Hollywood. So I want, I want to talk to you about your background on that and how you you came to a position where you could understand the the Hollywood business the way you used to understand the espionage business. Uh, start us off by telling telling us what you're doing now after your CIA retirement and how that's intersected with Hollywood. So the intersection with Hollywood came almost within a month of retirement in October of 2018. Now, just to kind of set the scene, about two months earlier, I was in with Director Haspel, um, pretty much saying my farewells to her. I didn't have any idea what I was going to do. So when when Gina said, you know, what are you going to do next? I said, boss, honestly, I don't know. But here's what I'm not going to be doing. And I laid out three very specific things Mm -hmm. that two months later I had already broken and reached out to the front office and said, um, can you please, can you please explain to the director that I under, you know, I'm not going back on my word. And she's like, listen, you're good. Um, but anyway, the first one was not to be on a, a red carpet. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing happens that fast in Hollywood anyway. Mm-hmm. But I was invited by the, the showrunners of a television show called Condor sure. to maybe consult on season two. Mm-hmm. Six Days of the Condor was the book. Right. Three Days of the Condor was the was the early 1970s movie, mm-hmm. and then Condor was a movie or a series that had only one season. Fantastic uh, actors, fantastic writers, but the premise of the first season was a little bit much for my preference. And without getting into all the details, basically the agency um, was going to infect an entire population people at a religious at a religious site, which just hit all the no, 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 never, 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 yeah. um, you know, buzz signs with me. So talking to the showrunners and showrunners are writers. Writers are very, um, shall we say, sensitive people. They're very, you know, into their craft and they're very set in how they want to present that. So when you put them up against the reality of my life as I lived it and the reality of Hollywood as they've depicted it, 
there's always going to be a clash. Mm-hmm. But once you once you kind of build trust with the um, with the writers and they recognize that your role is not to stop them from being entertaining, but stop them from doing the little things that completely tr- detract from you know from a story uh, and alienates people from the intelligence community. Things like phone calls from within a skiff or or <laughs> secure facilities yeah. or gunfights and you know shootouts. I'm like, listen, that's law enforcement. Mm-hmm. That's not my experiences. And I'd been in dangerous places. I'd been in Mogadishu's of the world. I was in Burundi in the aftermath of the Hutu Tutsi massacres. But mm-hmm. in my 28 years on the ground, never did I get into a car chase or a, or a shootout. So those small little things, which kind of bring, you know, bring action to a film, really take away from their overall, um, I guess, their overall purpose, which is to, you know, attract an audience that's going to stay with this story for, you know, perpetuity. Is it as frustrating to you, Daryl, as it is to to so many of us that it's, it's really the default for any so-called spy movie, um, even if it does involve aspects of traditional espionage and uh, asset recruitment, that it almost always defaults to shootouts, elongated car chases, and some of the silly stuff you mentioned, like, you know, pulling out the cell phone in the middle of a skiff. Is is that frustrating to see that when you know that good stories can be told without all that? It it is frustrating, um, but it is entertainment. Even the bad espionage shows that are out there, I watch them because they're entertaining um, to me. And season three, I'm going to tell you a quick story from my days on the uh, in a seventh floor meeting sure. with the cast and crew of Homeland. Oh yeah. Um, so the 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 DDO, the deputy director of operations at the time, was a very good friend of mine who's now passed, Frank Archibald, and. Uh, during a meeting, he says, um, he says, Daryl, uh, I got a favor to ask. I said, uh, is it a, <laughs> I said, you know, you're the boss, right? You don't have, it's not a favor. Just tell me what you need and I'll make sure it happens. He said, great. I want you to meet with the cast and crew of Homeland. I'm like, Oh, come on, Frank. <laughs> so we laugh a little bit. He's like, yeah, he's like, they're coming in, they're coming in to launch season three. They're going to do the, um, um, they're going to pilot you know, or going to show the first in the bubble. The bubble, of course, is our, our kind of our conference facility right there at CI headquarters. Anyway, so I met with the cast and crew of Homeland. And one of the questions they asked is, well, you know, what's the difference between the agency now and when you walked in the door? And I think that was probably about the 20 to 25 year point. That's a fair question. And I looked around the room and I saw Israelis and Brits, and there was another nationality that's that's uh, escaping me at the moment. And I said, well, we never would have seen, you know, we would never have been on the seventh floor of the CIA headquarters talking to actors yeah. and people from other countries and people who are pretending to be us. So there was kind of giggles around the room. And they said, yeah, but what are we getting right? Mm-hmm. And I paused for a second because the day before we met with the cast and crew, our office of protocol and our office of public affairs sat us down and said, listen, you can't criticize the show. You can't say anything negative about the plot line. You can't talk about this character versus that character. 
I'm like, well, what is the point of us meeting with them if we can't if we can't share these things? Right. And so I'm kind of stuck with, you know, not wanting to blow these, you know, pop these folks bubble and, you know, and just kind of enjoying this, you know, reality meets, um, you know, fiction, uh, fiction. Anyway, I, I took a deep breath and I said, actually, you're not getting anything right. And it dead drop silence <laughs> in the in the in the in the audience. And I said, but what you need to understand is if you get it right, it makes us much less safe. Our nation will be much less safe if the people who wish to do us harm can accurately know how we go about doing our business. I said, so please don't take it as a criticism. I love the show. I'm a fan of the show and keep doing what you're doing and recognize that getting it right is not, should not be your, um, on a tradecraft sense anyway, should never be your goal because that makes it all much less safe. That's a that's a great point. And and usually you hear that, but with a different logic. Usually the logic is please screenwriters, you know, don't try to be perfectly accurate because a whole lot of the business is really boring. Like the paperwork, the 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 reports you have to file, the all the prep you do that doesn't have action in it. There's a whole lot of that which doesn't come across well in a story and would actually seem to minimize the work that that gets done in terms of its importance and its national security impact. Exactly. But you're coming at it from a different angle. You're not saying don't do it because it's boring. You're saying don't do it because we want that mythology to be out there. We we want the world to think that we have every single capability that you're fictionalizing on screen because then maybe it helps us do our mission. Exactly. And then the uh, the last thing Frank wanted me to to tell to tell the cast and crew is like okay, tell them if Brody, who's the main character, of course, is going to play a marine, he needs to get a real marine haircut. <laughs> so of course I tracked down I tracked down the two Israeli. Um, actually, they came up to me and said, "Oh my goodness, you're the one who is from from Africa Division, and we want to do maybe one of our." Uh, season series on the continent of Africa. We love working with you. And I'm like, hold on. I don't think you all understand. This was a one-time meeting. Right. You're never going to see me again. You're never going to have this conversation about Africa division and how things are done there because that's not what this is about. So they were kind of crestfallen a little bit. And I said, listen, we love the show, but one of our very senior officers, and I didn't name Frank at the time, yeah. suggests this, that if Brody is going to be a Marine, he needs to get a real Marine haircut. So there's kind of like a furtive look between the two. <laughs> and they said, we don't think that's going to be a problem for season three. Ooh. Well, his head yeah. on episode one, season three, was Brody you know, in some fa- favela in a Latin American country, and his head is shaved. So they weren't wrong. <laughs> they yep. weren't wrong, but instead of giving him a real marine haircut, they 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 shaved his head. They just went the extra step, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, you you hit a lot of things there that I do want to talk about. You did spend a lot of time in Africa Division, which um, would love to talk about and and do some more talking about Frank, who's also one of my favorite people, and his untimely passing was horrible in many ways. Um, but let's talk about how you got to the agency 
in the first place. Do I remember hearing uh, right a while back that that you were an Air Force brat, that your, your dad was in the Air Force and you were moving around a lot as a kid? I was indeed. So I grew up in the heel of the boot, Italy, down in a small town called Brindisi, mm-hmm. or Brindisi, as they say in Italy, and then Okinawa, Japan. So Italy to Japan to Texas when I was nine. So seven of my first nine years on the planet was living in other cultures, living abroad. And, um, and then, of course, I, I realized that when I joined the Air Force much, much later and went into the intelligence world, that my father was also an Air Force intelligence um, non-commissioned officer. He was enlisted. I was an officer. And so I'm a second-generation intelligence officer. Between my father, my brother, and myself, my brother was in for maybe six years um, uh, Air Force, also in the same, he was a SIGINT side of the house or signals intelligence side of the house for the Air Force. So essentially NSA. Between the three of us, I think we have more than 60 years of (laughs) um, service uh, to the intelligence community. So I I always thought that was you know, at the end of my career, looking back and recognizing that like people's, you know, people's fathers are cops, become cops or lawyers, become lawyers. And my dad, who never even told me about the intelligence world that he had in the military, I kind of just naturally gravitated to that. So small world and kind of similar thinking. So he he didn't talk about the intelligence side of things, but just in terms of service to the country and America's role overseas was, was that mm-hmm. dinner table talk in your house? It, it was, and it wasn't, we would, um, no TV on during, during dinner. Of course, there was no mobile devices back then. So you didn't have to worry about having a cell phone or an iPad or something that was going to, going to disturb you. But we would talk about world events, um, at the table. Um, I, I think, being in the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and going into ROTC in high school and ROTC at the University of Georgia and becoming an officer did lay the path to, you know, you should give back. My parents always gave back. We always volunteered. We always did something either through the church or through the base or through family. We would, we would volunteer and and help folks. So, and, you know, we grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day and honoring the flag and, and a lot of things that this generation of folks make not necessarily, um, might not necessarily do. And just to kind of give you a, a quick, you know, personal story, my kids only went to school in the United States one year, fifth and seventh grade, respectfully. So the entirety of their education was from international or American schools uh, associated with the embassies in the countries Mm -hmm. that we lived in. So in 2002, um, we had essentially been outside of the Washington metropolitan area for eight of those 10 years. Um, So my kids didn't really know the United States. They didn't know the U.S. school system or anything. And of course, you know, being the good parents that we that we um, you know purported to be prepared our kids for school in the United States, bigger classes, more noise, more movement. And, but what we didn't consider is that they had never in their lives said the pledge of allegiance. 
So my daughter, who is in the in the fifth grade, comes home and she is mortified. She's like, what is this Pledge of Allegiance? And my ex-wife and I just looked at each other and like, of all the things that we didn't consider, this was it. So just imagine being wow. an 11-year-old girl yeah. in a brand new school and standing up and not knowing to stand up, not knowing the words, not knowing anyone because she's the new kid in, on the block. Mm. And that being her first impression of all of her classmates, I, we failed her. We absolutely failed her. But it never dawned on me that something as simple as, you know, standing up, put your head on your flag and saying these words that kind of brings a sense of history mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, sacrifice and everything else that, that goes into those words that my kids didn't, didn't have that. And they didn't get it through osmosis and mm. they have a very different view. Uh, they have a more international view yeah. of things than they do an American perspective of things. And that's not always, um, that's not always good for, for the, for the home and, no. well, and, and, dis, and discussing, you know, the, the U S position on, on certain things as kids are growing up and asking questions. So right. it got interesting. I got to say the pledge of allegiance issue is funny because I remember as a kid, we stood up, we said the pledge of allegiance every day, but it was, it was ritual. You, you didn't think about it right. until I had a teacher and I can't remember what grade it was, but it was somewhere probably between sixth and eighth grade. And he actually broke down the Pledge of Allegiance and he said, look, think about the words you're saying. And he took every phrase of it. You know, I mm -hmm. pledge allegiance. What does that mean? Um, to the flag of the United States of America. Why, what about the flag? What does it represent to you? Um, to the Republic for which it stands. And he, he talked about the fact that we are a Republic and why that matters. Um, and when you break it down, I mean, there, there's a whole lot going on inside that pledge that people just Absolutely. take for granted when they do it without thinking, right? Right. So having that experience may have actually been more meaningful uh, <laughs> as a parent to reflect on it and realize, okay, you know, maybe maybe there's an opportunity missed earlier, but now what a great chance to talk about the pledge and why it matters. Yep, I agree. You mentioned you mentioned the University of of Georgia and go dogs and, and ROTC. Um, but after that, you end up, you know, getting hired at the the CIA. And you've already mentioned that you spent, you know, a lot of time, a lot of time overseas. Um, I think you said you had, you know, 20 some different addresses in your time um, because you moved yes. so often. Do you remember yes. all those addresses? Like, can you recall where you lived in, you know, Kigali or Kampala or Bujumbura or wherever it was you were in various points? Well, those addresses were were very easy because at some point during my career, which was 1990 to 2018, they changed the address to be U.S. Embassy, uh, Niamey, and then it was a post office okay. box, okay. and it was a Virginia address. It was pretty much the, the same right. Virginia address except for the last four digits mm. of, the, um, of, the, um, of the zip code would be specific to Niger or Senegal or Morocco or Nigeria, which were my first, you know, my first uh, mm -hmm. uh, three or four, three or four tours. So that's kind of cheating. But I remember my address in from Okinawa forward from like four years old forward. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you where I was, what the address was, and in some of those houses, what the what the phone numbers were. Um, they don't exist anymore, but um, <laughs> it's kind of numbers that I that I tend to remember. So yeah, I yeah. I probably could tell you right now twenty of the twenty seven. Wow. Um, addresses. That's impressive because I, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday and you're able to remember <laughs> that. Um, you served in a number of countries in, in Africa. You've mentioned a few of them, but you went, you went north, west, east. You didn't go all the way south, but you went well into sub-Saharan Africa as well. Um, most people who don't serve in Africa division uh, at CIA don't get a sense, or even in the State Department or the military and have extensive experience across there, don't realize that, you know, the U.S. government has a pretty extensive presence in most countries um, when you take them all together. But sometimes the footprint in some individual countries is exceedingly small. And you have more autonomy, I would say, working in Africa division than in some other divisions. Um Growing up as a as an Africa Division officer and operating in those environments, did you did you have a sense of that in talking to some of your former colleagues who were working in some of the absolutely huge stations elsewhere? You know, the very different experience in the European circuit as opposed to the African circuit. Did you understand how blessed you were to have such operational freedom? Honestly, I really didn't, and I thank my stars every day that I overcame my, my, um, my indifference with being the black guy being sent to Africa division. I didn't want to be that guy. Um, I had grown up in Japan. I served in Korea as an Air Force officer. So I was more inclined to, um, towards East Asia, what was East Asia Division and is now East Asia Mission Center. Um, so when I walked in the door, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to go back to Asia. It was what I knew. It was what I loved. It was what I was comfortable with. And so I thought my first um, interim was on the North Korea desk. So oh, I'm like, heck of a way to start. It, it's a right. It is absolutely thrown in uh, to the deep end on some of the most sensitive and um, amazing operations that we have are uh, on that particular peninsula. So I saw it as a sign. I'm definitely going to go EA division. Well, somewhere along the line, I did one of my interims and it's the, um, back in the day, the pipeline, you would, you would do two or three months in different parts of the organization, kind of to give you a, a feel for- Just to get exposed for, to what they global, do and how they do exactly, it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, So Africa division to me, was just a way to, um, just to see, I mean, people have no concept of how big the continent is, first of all. If you took the continental United States, not including Alaska and Hawaii, you could fit three of them inside the African continent and still have room for, you know, maybe Alaska. So it's huge. Niamey Niger. Niger is the size of Texas and California combined. So the next time you look at a map of Africa, find Niger, N-I-G-E-R or Niger, and just look at that in terms of how small it looks in Africa. And then think about uh, that drive across, you know, across the, the, the Lone Star State and just how 
big and immense mm-hmm. um, some of these places are. And I knew nothing about Africa, mm-hmm. not really, other than what most people learned about Africa growing up in schools, which isn't a lot. My thing was I just didn't want to be pigeonholed. I didn't want to be um, typecast before I even had a chance to to show myself. Right. But I met a, a, a man named Bill Mosby. Mm-hmm. Bill Mosby, if you close your eyes and picture a great white hunter in the 1850s <laughs> with the, you know, with the big cask helmet on and the, you know, the, the, the pith helmet and the, and the rifle there and the, and the handlebar mustache. And yes, he had a handlebar mustache. This white guy from the woods of Pennsylvania knew more about Africa than probably anyone I've ever met. Wow. Not only did he know more about the continent and the history of each of them and from colonization to the present, he knew all of their leaders. Mm-hmm. The president of the United States might not be able to get the president of you know X country on the phone, but if Buana picked up the phone and called, they always answered. <laughs> this guy knew everyone's name in Africa Division. He knew their spouse's names. And in some instance, he knew the pet's names. He knew everybody. And I'm not talking somebody standing behind them, David, and saying, hey, this is Daryl Blocker coming up and he served in oh, he you know, A, B, and C. Yeah. He knew. And I watched this guy week after week and it felt like family. Hmm. It really, really felt like family. And I guess that's what I needed. I needed a sense of family. And hmm. Africa Division was the most amazing opportunity to see some of the most incredible parts of the world that people pay a lot of money to to go see. Yeah. And it was it was sep- it was I think what separated me as a leader because you mentioned at the beginning that being in a very small place you get more opportunities to be involved with more things yeah. outside of liaison which is me and being declared to the local government. Um, my early tours were, of course, uh, unilateral, meaning the government um, only knew me as the consular officer or the political mm-hmm. officer or the econ officer and not my second job. Um, that was that was great because there was nothing off limits, not the most sensitive Russian or Chinese or Iranian cases. Mm-hmm. We were involved, even if it was only to support, but being read into those things was just amazing. And I learned about the part of the agency that most young case officers didn't really care about, how it all worked, how it all fit together. So my third and final interim before I went through the training was in the Office of of Congressional Affairs. Mm. And I don't think they had ever had someone from the um, uh, career trainee program uh, asked to be a part of congressional affairs. And they said, well, why do you want to do that? I said, well, I know how the organization works now. I need to see how we fit into the bigger picture. Sure. And I was a, I was a GS eight and, and I'm like, well, why do you need to know that? Yeah. I'm like, well, this is how it all fits together. Right. So I'm a puzzle guy. I got to know how things fit together or where they don't fit or how I can wedge, mm-hmm. you know, something into a, in a, in a certain way. And you can't do that if you don't know how the overall um, machinery works. So I learned, I had bosses that taught me the the fiscal side of it, mm-hmm. how to get money, how to plan out all these things. So while 
I was not as successful as a young case officer. I tell young case officers this all the time. I did not recruit in my first or my second tour. That really? is a death sentence in the director of operations. But I knew once I understood, once I appreciated the, um, the nuances of the work, that I was going to be able to, you know, make up for, for time lost. And I did. Reflecting back on it now, what do you think were the major obstacles to recruitments early on? Was it your personality or was it a function of where you were and what the targets were at the time? Um, it was a, it was a function of the latter. So my son, who's fine, he's fine now, he's 32 years old, but we got medevac out of our first oh. assignment in, in Niamey, Niger, West Africa. He was about three weeks shy of his third birthday, so he was very, very young, but also living in one of the poorest countries on the planet where they didn't have the medical, um, the medical facilities to deal with Kawasaki syndrome. So I had a truncated first tour. It yeah. lasted less than a year. Mm. But Moving from there, I went back to headquarters, mm-hmm. arriving on the desk in late August or early September, and a month later, um, being assigned to the Somali uh, Somali working group, I mm-hmm. uh, went from being a mundane kind of routine type of type of job that we knew was going to end because the president had already announced that we were going to be pulling out on the first of April of the mm-hmm. following year. Yeah, so. I was in a holding pattern being assigned to the Somalia desk and then Black Hawk Down happens. Right. And I was a briefer in the um in the in the Air Force in the military, mm-hmm. a Soviet weapons analyst and kind of overall briefer. Mm-hmm. So the deputy director of that um um of that working group later became the deputy uh the director of the counterterrorism center for 9 years and then went on to run the uh, Iranian Mission Center. You know who this individual is. So I worked for him three different times. The first time as a, a, an upstart, mm-hmm. you know, didn't do anything in West Africa, right. uh, case officer who just kind of got thrown into this mix of people because they didn't know where to put them because I was still supposed to be out in the field. But is it, is it fair to say that even back then on the Somali working group that Mike was intense? <laughs> He Mike was intense, but Mike was always fair, and I bugged the shit out of him for about three months to put me out. Like put me in coach, put me in coach, put me in coach, because my job was to prepare the case officers who were coming from all parts of the organization to go out to this one little small part of of Africa to support to support uh, what the CIA was doing, but also the greater humanitarian mission, which was the reason that we went in under, under George Bush senior. Right. Anyway. So come January, um, I go out to Mogadishu for, for seven weeks and it was everything a young case officer could hope for. I had been studying every file, everything that had been going on there for the entirety. And then definitely knew all the cases better than probably anybody. And the only reason he, he sent me out was to go out and basically set up our stay behind, our stay behind stable, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned how to terminate a case before I learned how to recruit, <laughs> and I must have I must have terminated uh, more than a dozen people 
Now that's in seven weeks. That's unprecedented and unheard of. And quite frankly, it got to be dangerous. Yeah. Without uh, without giving away any individual details, uh, did any of them go, go poorly? Because obviously one of the risks (laughs) of the termination is, guess what? Um, Somebody really, somebody who has sensitive information about the relationship with the United States might not agree that their services are no longer needed and they might turn on you. Um, That, that does happen. But what ended up happening, David, was the news got out that, and you have to understand that case officers in those days were switching out every six to eight weeks. So the, the sources, the assets, the agents that we were handling were used to seeing new faces. Mm-hmm. They, but there was a protocol for it. They know, you know, there was the bona fides set up. Yeah. So nine times out of 10 or 99 out of 100, you found the right person. Well, the word got out that if the young black guy was meeting you, it was over. Uh, the new, the new, the new kid in town. So most of the terminations, they'd see me, and then their head would drop, and then basically they just go away. Yeah. So some of them were turned into administrative, but one guy who was the only asset that we allowed to maintain his sidearm mm-hmm. when he came on the came on the compound, um, could I could tell he was a little nervous, mm-hmm. and he was acting just a little twitchy. And I just reached over and I put my hand on, on his leg and I said, you're fine. I know that you've heard you're not you're not one of the ones that's getting the axe. And I could tell he was yeah. he was just preoccupied. We were chasing ID at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of very, very tense um, all around. But, yeah, the word got out that if um, the young, you know, young black dude showed up at the gate, your days were <laughs> your days were numbered or it was over. It was your final paycheck. So a lot of them just happened to to go away, and they knew the United States was pulling out. Everyone knew the date. Everyone knew the time, which is why ever since I've just been a not a fan of the U.S. government yeah. telling other governments when we're going to do something on on a on a you know very definitive timeline. It it doesn't it doesn't work out well for right. us. Well, you your experiences took you ac- across the continent, but eventually after doing that, you're moving through your career. At one point, you're chief of Africa division, right? So I was indeed. How does your perspective change from, you know, being a case officer working in various places around the continent, and then working several layers of management above that, but actually being responsible for all of the operations and activities uh, at all the stations and bases? What, looking back at it, what is it that you found either you grew as a, a leader and a manager or you wish you would have grown more as a leader and a manager before taking on that responsibility? The, the transition from going from what we call the bullpen where the unilateral case officers and maybe the chief of operations in a small place, uh, even the, the COS would sit around and kind of brainstorming how to go about doing whatever we had just been tasked to do. So the transition from being a bullpen officer for being an officer who's managing the the tempo mm-hmm. of case officers doing it yourself is one thing but managing other people who do it yeah. it takes time and i was a chief of base in west africa in the year up to and the year after uh 9/11 so it was a very serious and intimate time 2000 to 2002 at the end of that assignment um by all measures within the directorate, I had done very, very well. 
all of the all three of the case officers under my under my command had recruited they produced foreign intelligence we had improved the relationship with the government because they helped us in the aftermath of 9/11 everything was fantastic on how you get judged for promotion well in the wisdom of the agency they sent me to a leadership course after they sent me out to the field as as Perfect. a leader now i had been a leader in the air force before and you know i was i'm i'm a type um i'm a guy who says either make it happen or or move out of the way mm-hmm. i'm just that kind of person well that style did not go over well with the three case officers i had to do 360 feedback um session in order to get into the leadership course that they sent me to and as you might imagine, um, producing intelligence, recruiting spies, all the things that they judge a case officer for, I did fine. But I was seen as a micromanager, as a know-it-all. And I found this out during this, this leadership course, what the specifics of, of that meant. And it was, it was painful. And I'm talking 20 years later as I'm telling this story. It's like I could just feel the the pain of realizing that the officer that I thought I was mm-hmm. and the officer that my my direct reports, my junior case officers felt about me were completely different. Yeah. And I knew I was that person and that if I didn't change, mm. I was only going to go so far in this business. So I learned early to focus on the people. They're trained to do the operations while you're overseeing operation. Even as chief of Africa division, I wasn't running operations, but I was running a global enterprise with, you know, you know, 20 plus, you know, offices uh, throughout the, throughout the continent. And if you focus on the people and taking care of their welfare, they will do the work that, you know, that, uh, that they were sent out there to do. So I really focus less on operations and more mm-hmm. on, on, uh, on the personnel side of the house. And I kind of think that's what I was known for, mm. of taking care of my people. Um, yeah. The conference that, uh, that, that you opened up with, the conference that never happened, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a great uh, kind of great one-liner. Um, the number of people who came up to me and said, oh my goodness, thank you so much. Do you remember when you helped me do you know, X, Y, and Z? And some of them I recall, but some of them I didn't because if anyone reaches out to me, I felt it was my job and my duty and my responsibility to help them in any way that was going to be you know, making sure that op- opposing sides of, of whatever issue, and most of them were personnel and some personal issues, mm-hmm. Once people know that you're taking care of them, they'll do anything for you. They'll work long hours. I actually had one officer say, um, who was not a fan of mine, by the way, when I arrived in, in Geneva and had been up under a different management. So when I got there, he had already lived there for a year up under a, a different chief and deputy. So he was adjusting to new management and we were adjusting to the new people. And the first year was rough. Um, almost everything that I tried to get him to do, nothing worked with him mm. until I did something that was along the lines of what we were just talking about. 
I lightened his load by, you know, doing a lot of upfront work that was more grunt work and I had the time to do it. And he came into me and he's like, you know, I was not a part of the, I was, I was not a fan at first, but I want to tell you right now, I would run through fire for you. And that just, that just struck me that, okay, that hard lesson that I learned in that leadership course about seeing who I really am Mm -hmm. and exposing the fact that, no, I'm not a good, I wasn't a good leader. I thought I was a good leader. I was good at handling operations. I was good at, you know, getting someone to say yes. I was good at getting people to tell me, you know, their deepest, darkest secrets, but I couldn't manage the people who also did that. You know, I'm I'm glad, Daryl, you brought that up, especially from the training aspect, because I think people generally have a sense that, of course, intelligence officers go through training and they understand the kind of work that must go into learning tradecraft and preparing to work in the field that, you know, that we we go through training for that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's lesser known and appreciated that every level of management at the agency, whether it's the branch chief, the the group chief, all the way up, every level has its own dedicated leadership training now. And mm-hmm. yes, it doesn't mean that every manager is a, a good leader, right? There are plenty of people who don't take on board those lessons or maybe don't have the skill set to do as well at the leadership and management side as they did at the recruiting asset side. That That's definitely true. But there is a conscious effort to make sure that people know how to lead people better. And that's evolved a lot from the, the time you started, even from the time I started, where that was not institutionalized across all levels of management. Now, you, you can't move to a new level of management without taking some extensive training that requires you to self-reflect and hopefully learn lessons from others. Right. So the 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 one course that everyone that wanted to become an SIS officer had to take, no matter which directorate you were in. Um, They actually brought me back to tell the story of my 360 experience. Mm -hmm. And it became probably one of the more, um, more sought after speeches because I was very humble. I, I went from thinking that I was this, you know, amazing, you know, no one had ever done this before. And, and quite frankly, it was unprecedented the amount of um, um, success that we had because when I bid on that particular job, it was me and it was a singleton slot. But by the time I arrived, there were three junior officers that were under my, under my command, which is a completely different um, a way of running, running a particular office. And I, I didn't do well. And I can admit that now. But I learned the hard way. I learned through 360 feedback to when you get the feedback, you'll look at the parts that, you know, that you agree with and you're like, yeah, that's me. And then you'll look at the parts that you don't agree with and say, yeah, that's not me. Yeah. Or that's not who I want to be. And that's not who I, exactly. So my speech was around, don't focus on the things you do agree with and embrace the ones that are painful to you because if you can figure this out, if you can figure out this piece right here and you're, and you're still continuing to do really well on the other piece, then the world's your oyster. Yeah. And I don't know if I thought about that systematically like that, but I just knew inherently that I didn't want to be that person mm-hmm. that was described as just, just not 
in it for himself mm-hmm. and not for the greater the the, the greater good. So mm-hmm. right around that time, I had seen this Latin phrase um, above the door that was non sibi sed patriae, which is above the door at the chapel at the United States Naval Academy, and it means not for self but for country. Mm-hmm. So that that little thing was you know, in my instant messaging window and was in every speech I gave that this is not about you anymore. Yeah. It's about you. So, you know, I ran the schoolhouse for, I was the Dean of the, of the training facility for the Directorate of operations for, mm-hmm. for three years. And I made sure that every person that walked in that door during my three years understood that it's about you today because welcome to the agency you made the right decision in accepting that conditional offer of employment. But the next time this is going to be about you is at your retirement ceremony. <laughs> and if you can't, and I know you don't want to hear that on day one of, you know, you accepting this job and you're excited about joining the CIA. You don't want to hear that the next time that it's about you is, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years in the future. But I thought it was important that they understood that this really isn't about you anymore. Right. This is about a greater, a greater picture and, and a greater, well, I think I would be, well, I, that I, I don't really care what you want. This is how the system works yep. and the system does work. Now it's not, imp- you know, it's not infallible, but we have long, long history and data um, analytically that we can prove that these things work. Yep. I still think it's black magic. You know, the whole time I was at the schoolhouse, I'm thinking, oh, God, please, the wheels don't come off. Wheels don't come off. Wheels don't come off. And they didn't. You know, we had a we had a hurricane that yeah. shut down training at some point. Uh, the Arab Spring happened, which threw up, you know, we had to throw in some very real scenarios into the into the, um, you know, into the training. And so there's always things that uh, that you can adjust to. But never forget that it's not about you. It's about, you know, our nation and our you know, nation's security. There's oh. another aspect of training that I want to bring up because we as intelligence officers learn, and especially again for field assignments, that you don't want to draw undue attention to yourself. The The point is yeah. to be able to operate in a way that doesn't draw um, the spotlight from, you know, counterintelligence in the country you're working in or others. And you violated that pretty dramatically in <laughs> Africa because you found yourself as the lead singer of the Kampala Jazz All-Stars. And you are recognized on the street as being the leader or at least the front face of this popular band. How, how did that happen? How did you end up becoming a recognizable uh, musician in Africa during your time there? That, that I, so, um, I talked about the the three things that I told the former director CIA that I yeah. wasn't going to do. Yeah. Um, one of them was you're not going to see me on on the news talking about you know international affairs. Well, oh, oh. a former case officer um, helped set up Disney's uh, global response global operations center you know 20 years ago, and so when I got out, Linda reached out to me and said, "Hey, would you be willing to speak with with?" Um, with this guy, he's in charge of what we call our contributors. There's former SWAT, Homeland Security, FBI, but there's no one 
from CIA. Mm-hmm. So of course I went and and um and and met with them. And by January of 2019, I was an ABC News uh, contributor. <laughs> now that that experience uh, brought me to the attention of an ABC News journalist who had seen a podcast that I was in, and the tagline for that podcast was. Um, singing, spying was hard. Singing was easy. <laughs> and, and the, and the guy brought up the, the, um, the host brought up the same thing. He talked about my singing. So I've been singing. Singing was my first love. Mm. Absolutely. My first love. Um, and I've sang, I've sang the national anthem at U S embassy, um, national days in four different countries. I sang in a band in Senegal. You're a but brave the, man because singing, the, singing the Star Spangled Banner is is one of the hard. hardest things to sing, it especially really is. unaccompanied in front of a crowd. Well, David, I, I I only sing it a cappella because I've tried to sing it with bands, Oof. and I have to switch it up in my head the way I sing it sometimes. Yeah. And when it's with the music, it's not. So I always do it a cappella. And the first time I did it was I was in Nigeria, and the first year we had a Nigerian singing the national anthem. So I turned to the ambassador. I said, Mr. Ambassador, um, we, we can't have a foreign national singing our, our national anthem. He said, well, are you a singer? I said, well, actually I sing. And he said, well, now you have a year to prepare for next year. (laughs) And I was like, I don't want to sing it. He's like, okay, you're going to, either you're going to resolve the issue or not. So I sang it in Abuja, Nigeria for the first time. And then I went on to sing it in Switzerland and, and Uganda and almost every place that I served after that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to the, to the Uganda front front man. Um, one of the ABC journalists saw the, saw the podcast and said, I want to interview you about your singing career. And it, I hadn't much thought about Kampala jazz all-stars since I left. So one of the AID um, one of the spouses of a U.S. Agency for International Development officer, he was a Berkeley School of Music trained musician. Mm. So he found two Congolese and two Ugandans, and he started this band that became the Kampala Jazz All-Stars. Now, I got Kampala because the, the person who was slated to go out, a family member couldn't get medically cleared, so mm. she had to pull out of the assignment and then needed somebody to go out like yesterday. You so up. my boss on the desk at the time uh, in, in, in Africa division thought that I would be a good candidate for going out as, uh, as, the, as the boss. And so my family, who had only lived overseas, had just gotten settled into the fifth and seventh grade. And now I had to go home and tell them there's a possibility we could get uprooted and, and um, you know, head back, head back overseas. So I spent the first three months of that assignment while my family was finishing up uh, that first semester of school through Christmas. And I every Sunday I went to listen to this band around the corner. I walked around there. They were incredible. They were just fantastic musicians, hmm. but they weren't singers. And um, so they would see me kind of mouthing some of the songs. And Jim said, you know, want to come sing with us? Want to come sing with us? I'm like, no, 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 no. Well, family arrives. I take them to see this group that I've been, I've been raving about for, for months and about two months after that. So March, April timeframe, 
the band comes to me again and says, are you, are you ready to sing now? I was like, well, no. And he's like, well, you're, um, your ex, my now ex-wife, your, you know, your, your wife said, you know, we, we've been practicing these 15 to 20 songs that she, she knew you would be able to sing. So she had given them a tape of songs or she a list of, lo- of songs. Of so- uh, absolutely. Neck. Absolutely. So anyway, we had a rehearsal, worst rehearsal in the history of rehearsals. Um, electricity kept cutting off. The timing was wrong. There was no chemistry. And I said, okay, yeah, we need to have another practice. And Jim's like, no, we're on for Sunday night. The banners have been printed. You're on. And I'm like, I'm not ready. Well, yeah, you are. we were ready. We were ready. And that night launched the next two and a half years of singing with this band. So, yeah, I was the front man of a band, but it was my passion. It was my authentic self. It was what I, it's what I would would have been doing if I, I guess if I wasn't doing this work, I would and probably I guess nobody be, figured that any, you know, rational undercover officer would ever right. put himself in a position where he was exactly. in, on center stage and attracting attention. So in a way, the, it, it probably helped you <laughs> because it, it, it covered up the fact that uh, you were doing some other work, right? It did. And honestly, because I was the senior officer, I was declared to people in their internal service, their military intelligence. So I had people that were in the audience that knew that I was also something else. Um, But, you know, you try not to mix apples and oranges. You try not to, I, I, I didn't use that as a way of, you know, getting close to, to an asset. That was my time. That was my away from all the other responsibilities that I had the safety and security of my right. my assets and sources and my people and my responsibility to the greater agency and all of that. Singing was for me, and I loved it. And it was yeah. it's it's one of those articles. I live in Hollywood now. I live in I live in L.A. Mm-hmm. So every now and then I'll see kind of people kind of glancing. They see me, and inevitably they've seen one of two things: they've seen me on ABC News mm-hmm. or they've read that particular article. Oh in 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 the in abc news and the and the writer of that now three years into knowing him uh we're friends and he says he's been writing there for 10 years that article is the only one that he still gets questions about well there's something magical about the intersection of two things that are inherently interesting to people which is right people who have the skill and the courage and it takes both to go up on stage and 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 perform and the people who have the skill and the courage, and it takes both, to to do something in the espionage business, and it builds on the legacy of people. Just recently, here on Chatter, my uh, alternating host Shane Harris had a whole episode about Josephine Baker and her history with spying. And you combine those two things in a story, um, you can't help but be interested in that. So, and and she yeah, was yes, I'm genius. putting you in her shadow right now. No, that that brother, I that that brings me untold joy because I I consider myself a kind of a student of history. So for me, I can pretty much recite chap you know chapter and verse from the OSS forward, just because that's what I I, I love this institution, and I still speak in terms of we as if the agency cares about me as much as <laughs> as I care about it. But um, it it becomes. It becomes a part of who you are. Yeah. 
Talk, and, talk um, about that that a bit. You know, being a former intelligence officer, you you have the right, and in some cases, almost a duty, to be critical of the organization that you were a part of because you want it to improve for the benefit of both the people who work there and for the national security of the United States. On the other hand, you, you're still you still feel some sense of loyalty and you don't want to be overly critical. How right. do you balance that when you're looking back after leaving? I think all of us struggle with this to some level of being the honest person who can say, yeah, we can do some things better and we really need to versus being the cheerleader and saying, I'm an advocate for the organization. Right. And, and again, getting back to my final, final meeting with the director Haspel, I told her, I said, listen, boss, I personally don't say anything negative about a sitting president. I don't care who that president is. Mm -hmm. And I worked for six from Reagan to Trump. I never, ever said anything negative about a sitting president just because I just think it's bad form. So for me, I'm a person who is always going to look for the silver lining. That's always going to try and make sure that, you know, people who are in diametrically opposing views at least can find some commonality in which they can, you know, continue to discuss or move forward. So I was critical uh, internally from the moment I walked in as a GS8 to walking out of the door as an SIS4. I always felt it was my responsibility to kind of throw up my hand and or throw the bullshit flag and say, no, 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 no. I, you know, I would speak up. So I don't think I've done anything since I got out that was any different than you know the person that I that I always was. There you go. And it's easy to criticize, but it's much easier for me to try and give people a a, a more to help them understand why that decision was made, mm-hmm. not to justify what was done or to denigrate what was done but to just to kind of set the scene and say, okay, this is what we're, is what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're, is what we're looking at. So balance is kind of one of those things that you just learn how to, how to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if you're going to be a good intelligence officer, you have to be flexible. You have to be uh, resilient. You have to be, um, you have to be trained. You know, this is, there's, there's a very, there's it's an art and a science you know people say nurture nurture or nature and i say yes they're like no which like no you don't get you're not going to put me in one or the other it is a combination of both and it's true for for our work whether you're an analyst learning your your trade craft which which i was i came to the organization as an analyst from the military and then of course moved to the operational side of the house but i still always approach things in a very analytical kind of way, not in a cold sense, but in a, this isn't about me sense. And this isn't about how I feel about it, but you know, it might not be in my personal self-interest, but it's in the greater good. Right. I can go with that. I well, don't need to win. You must've done something right in that regard, Daryl, because a couple of years ago you were reported to be on the short list being considered as a potential director of central intelligence or now the director of the central intelligence agency. And I'm not going to ask you to get inside the head of President Biden or anybody else who was involved in that decision, but I'm going to ask you about it from a different angle, which is in that time frame, thinking about even the possibility of being director, 
it's hard not to go in two directions. One direction is what are all the things that the organization is doing right that as a leader, I want to protect and enable? And what are the things that my experience shows me, you know what, we collectively probably could have done better. And as director, I might have the ability to effect change in a way that can help make up for some of those things that I thought inhibited our operations and our human potential in the past. So on that front, if you had been selected as director of the Central Intelligence Agency, what's one of those things that you think, you know, we probably need to emphasize this. We probably need to do this better than we've done in the past. You know what, David? That that's an easy one, and I don't. I, it literally never crossed my mind till right now. I had, of course, mapped out who my chief of staff was going to be. I had mapped out who I wanted to have as my kind of my inner, you know, my inner sanctum, my inner, my inner circle. But what we could do better was deal with the press. I was really reluctant hmm. at first to go to the you know the news side yeah. of of the world, but how ABC approaches how they get things on the air and the back and forth because I can see the emails back and forth between the between the reporters and what they call standards and legal and they vet very much the same way the agency vets and. I was really, really impressed. So for me, one of the things I wanted to do was open up the agency, but they're already doing it. If you go on LinkedIn now, there are people deputy director level who are on there all the time selling and touting who we are. Such a difference from a couple of decades it is ago. Such, it is such a difference. When I walked in the door um, in 1990, the only words that came out of our office of public affairs in response to a question to the agency was we can neither confirm nor deny seven words that's it today's world is not going to put up with that Mm -mm. it's just not going to happen and bringing embracing some of the journalists and and listen i've had i've had a lot of reactions to from classmates and and people that i i hold dear who think that I should just stop talking? I sh- you know just stop talking on the news. You're you're giving too much away. I'm not giving anything away. I I am trying to help people understand how intelligence fits into everything that we do as a society, and stop seeing it as such a negative thing. Mm-hmm. It's not negative. The agency is the one behind the scenes stopping bad things from happening or stopping bad decisions from being made, and not just domestically within our, our national policy or national, um, national security uh, realm, but helping other governments understand how we came to this decision, yeah. why we came to this decision, what we were, you know, um, a lot of people are willing to deal with the United States, but only if they do it on a bilateral, meaning no one else knows about it. Almost everybody is willing to talk to us. Those willing to talk to us and let the world know that they're talking to us is a completely, completely different thing. Right. So embracing um, the journalist world, explaining a little bit more, not the tradecraft, but the process Mm -hmm. that there's not just people just sitting around making snap decisions 
on whether someone lives or dies. That is absolutely not how it's done. And quite frankly, I think the world would be maybe not satisfied, but I think they'd have a different perspective of us if they knew the decisions that went into how we go about doing our doing our business. Absolutely fair. Daryl, let me reach into our chatterbox here to ask you a random question. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? 20-year-old self. Um, live in the moment a bit more. Stop worrying about, stop worrying about the future. You think you did too much of that when you were starting out? I think I did. You know, there's a, you know, um, man plans and God laughs is um, one of the first French phrases that I, that I learned. It was, I thought it was, it's apropos because if you look at my career, everything that I planned to do um, was completely opposite of what happened. Came into the agency. I knew I was going to East Asia. I didn't want to be the black dude going to Africa. Ended up going to Africa and growing up through the system to become chief of it. One of the proudest moments of my life, 3 June of 2014, I get the call from Frank Archibald, the DDO, asking me if I would accept the position of chief of Africa division. I have that marked in my calendar. For me, that was me reaching the pinnacle of my career was that particular, you know, that particular assignment. So, but I learned then that I had literally planned out my entire career through some leadership course I had taken like 10 years earlier. They said, who do you want to be? And basically I said, I want to be, um, I want to be the DDO. I was probably a GS 11, you know, (laughs) GS 11 upstart talking about being the deputy director of operations. And I can just imagine them, you know, the, the people up the chain looking at who is this kid? Who does he think he is? And I had planned out everything. Um, Well, my planning to go to EA division ended up going to Africa. My plan of learning Chinese or Japanese, I ended up learning French. My plans of, you know, all the plans that I had laid out, but it was a perfect career. Yeah, I wouldn't change anything. And I'm talking house break-ins in Uganda and medical evacuations out of, out of Niger and getting shot at in Somalia. All of them were just a part of, of my experience and a part of, of growing into what I hope was someone that people can look up to and that at the end of the day, people can trust because trust is the currency of espionage. Trust is the currency of every relationship that you have in your life, personal, intimate, professional. It all boils down to trust. Let's close on the Hollywood side. So you're sitting out there in LA now. Anything we have to look forward to on the production or the consultant side that you're going to be bringing us or helping others to bring to us that we should have on our radar? Um, the process is very slow. Mm-hmm. My introduction to the, the Hollywood process started with Condor, started in the writer's room, And now I've been in three separate writers' rooms. None of those others have yet um, uh, made it to the the, the big or small screen. Mm -hmm. But my girlfriend, who is my creative partner, is a New York Times bestselling author. 
And she and I, for the last three years, have created um, um, six projects that are espionage themed, mm. but they're more stories about the relationships between yeah. case officers and their assets. They're such good um, stories. Mothers, mothers and daughters. Yeah. Um, uh, from the perspective of a clinical of a clinical psychologist who's dealing with officers on the inside and the assets who are actually doing the most dangerous aspects of of what we're doing. So those stories are now at the point where we're talking to writers, we're talking to directors, we're talking to studios. People really, really love the ideas, but you know what's coming out of my head and that that Janie is is with her writing skills is creating, you know, really things that's getting folks interested. I am hopeful that we will sell something soon. Mm -hmm. I am hopeful that we will continue to have at least some semblance of control in where it ends up, because that's the thing. You can create something all you want, but once you hand over that power to someone else, then they can change it to, um, um, to whatever they, to whatever they want. And if you were there at the at the end of the conference, you'll understand the the scenario in which I'm gonna in which I'm gonna say that uh, Dr. Vickers, who was portrayed as a chess playing savant in the movie Charlie Wilson's War, was the only the only truthful scene about that scene is that the meeting actually happened in that park. He said, "I'm a terrible chess player." <laughs> He's like, "But for the sake of you know creating you know tension, you know they had me playing." four separate chess games without looking at any of the boards where they just made me out to be this genius. And I'm not, I'm terrible at chess. So the story was accurate in that, that meeting happened and it happened there, but the poetic license of the entertainment created made him something that he wasn't. So you have to be able to live with little things like that, which is fine. Um, but you have to maintain control of your, of your product because what I'm telling are spy stories, but at the end of the day, they're about people. Mm -hmm. At the end of every operation is somebody's son or daughter who is, you know, might be a part of Al Qaeda today. But guess what? They were someone's favorite teacher in the first grade. They were someone's, um, you know, little next door neighbor who, you know, who would run errands for you. Who there was something about that person yeah. that was nice to someone else, and they weren't always this person. That's who I'm looking for. I have to you have to look beyond the um, the superficial. Yeah. Well, Daryl, I appreciate your time, and I really appreciate you really hitting that point in in all of these parts of the conversation on the people side of the business and the people side of the way the business is portrayed. Thanks for joining me on Chatter. Well, thank you for having me, and I appreciate this opportunity, and um, I appreciate you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.